On today's podcast, we'll be joined by my favorite couple, the marine biologist, diver, and conservationist duo, Tristan and Annie Guttridge. They'll be discussing their work with monster hammerheads in the Bahamas and Florida, and why there isn't very much known about this elusive species. Also, how two hammerheads ended up in a fish market in Maine last week. All that and more is coming up on this episode of Shark Week, the podcast. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. And I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. You know, sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years. They're a critical part of the ocean and a conduit to a better understanding life on our planet. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before, or you've been a diehard fan over the 30 plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. On this episode, I'm delighted to welcome two very special guests. We have Tristan and Annie Guttridge. Tristan is a marine biologist. Annie is a shark diver, underwater photographer, and ocean conservationist. Thank you so much for joining us on Shark Week, the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us. Delighted to be here. Stoked. Well, you guys are two of my favorite people to watch on Shark Week, and I've been following your careers and, weirdly enough, relationship for uh, quite some time now. Um, I, I would usually kind of ask, you know what your love for sharks, where did that start from and how did you guys get together? But I kind of feel it's kind of all of one origin story with you guys. So um, who wants to tell it? I mean, it actually started with a restraining order against Tristan, if I'm honest. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, my love for sharks has been since I was a child. I traveled all over the world, dived with sharks in different oceans and found myself in the Bahamas volunteering at a shark research station which is where, obviously, I met Tristan. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of amusing, really, that both of us were living in England, probably about an hour and a half away, at the same kind of age, six to seven, both having these parallel obsessions with sharks, but not knowing each other, and then kind of like 30 years, or 24 years later, age around 30, we then we then get to meet each other in one of the shark meccas of the world, in, in, in Bimini. Um, but it's, uh, it was kind of strange because Annie was was supposed to be volunteering a couple of years prior to when I was going to be there. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't have met each other at all. And it was just kind of by luck that we had someone at the station uh, drop out. And she happened to email the same day as the person dropped out, which then meant she came out to Bimini. And then obviously we met and everything kind of went from there. So it was all all very strange and a bit of fate, really. Um, but yeah, we both have this crazy passion and shared passion for sharks. Mine was a little bit younger than Annie. I think she was around seven. I was probably six. So Tristan, you're claiming seniority on uh, the length of time that you've loved sharks over Annie. Is that right? I think it's important for the for people to know that, yeah, that there's an extra year of passion on my my part. Than, than Annie. It's a shame, but it's true. At all. I, have a, <laughs> I have a T-shirt from when I was like four, the Guy Harvey one with sharks all over it. I still have it, actually, and there is a photo of me wearing it, so, you know. Let's dive into this. But um, <laughs> So, Tristan, your your love of marine biology, uh, whether it has a, uh, a longer duration than Annie's or not, I am um, not weighing in on that, but it led to you going to uh, to study marine biology and now you have a PhD. Can you tell us uh, what that area of focus is and what you currently do? Well, it was really my love for animal behavior. 
um, that got me into animal behavior and then sharks. I actually did a degree in zoology, so I, I don't have any marine biology training, although now you probably describe my career more as a marine biologist because I work with you know, animals in the ocean. Um, and I would say my focus really is at the moment now is, is trying to understand more about the biology and behavior of threatened sharks and rays. Um, and that's part of our um, mission statement for our nonprofit that Annie and I um, established three or four years ago now called Saving yeah. the Blue. And Annie, I know that you, you volunteered and have done a lot of work with sharks, but you don't have any uh, university training in it. But your work is actually um, doing a lot for sharks. Can you tell us your outlet for the passion of sharks? Yeah, I mean, basically, my background was all business. Um, I was in operations management and things like that. And then always had sharks as a hobby, as something I loved. I traveled the world. Again, I dived with them and tried to do volunteering, research wherever I could, and then kind of fell into this. Um, it was something that I always thought, oh, maybe one day I would do. But again, no formal background, never really thought it was um, possible. And then, yeah, fell into it and, and obviously met Tristan. And we've got two completely different sides of education and background that have collided which have really complemented each other to create saving the blue that we have now you know i bought the logistics the operations background tristan's bought his expertise in research and science and then we've created a business from it so i've kind of te- taught him some skills and then he's taught me skills and together it's um it's worked out pretty well i would say so you guys are now in Florida, but uh, I think the last time we chatted, you were um, either living or setting up or doing something at an Andros in the Bahamas. You know, one of the, the biggest islands in the Bahamas is, is Andros. Um, it's like a, a hundred miles by around 40 miles. It's just this amazing place with pristine habitats and they're completely unexplored. You know, you do a literature search on sharks and Andros and there's there's nothing out there. We don't know anything about these animals. And... There's such productive habitats there and, and nursery areas for, for different species that, you know, to us, it was this kind of amazing location where we could try and figure out how important Andros is, um, you know, to the Bahamas shark population and, and potentially as a source population for the rest of the, you know, the Western Atlantic, Northwestern Atlantic as well. So we've we've started a number of different research projects there uh, Annie mentioned earlier we we focus in on um, we've got three or four species that we do kind of species focused projects one of them is the great hammerhead um, and to me you know one of the most iconic charismatic species out there can reach up to almost 20 feet in length you know they they travel long distances they migrate they have that the crazy head they look like a kind of alien. Um, and in Andros, we've had we have this kind of aggregation site where we can regularly see them um, during pretty much year round, which is also really novel. And then another species that's that really captures the imagination of people is the small toothed sawfish. Um, it's obviously a species of ray. It has that massive rostrum with the teeth on the outside, and they're critically endangered. Ninety uh, percent range contraction. And Andros happens to be one of the best places to see them. Um, but again, we don't know much about their distribution and abundance in the in the region. So they're kind of two species that we've been working on and, and um, with a lot of community outreach as well. Um, Annie uh, designed a, a children's book. I'm obsessed with them. Yeah, she is obsessed. In fact, she's leaving me tomorrow to go and find one, which is she's already been away and she's going again. Nice. Um 
but I don't blame her. So that, that's one one thing we can agree on. Um, you know, and it's like, you know, Tristan, I want to go away and search for sawfish for three days. Is that okay? I think it was you suggesting it, actually. I know. In, yeah, I did. I did. And where are you off to, Annie? Back to Andros. So tell us about the book, Annie. Um, so basically, I wrote it, um, well, a year and a half ago, and it's been printed. And we have 5,000 copies of them that we're gifting to all the children. We've done. We've actually now finished all of Andros, so we've given every child in Andros one of these books um, and it's basically a book all about the Bahamas so we have six different habitats a bit on conservation there's a bit about being a habitat hero um, and it's just a really beautiful little book that you know I'm really fortunate enough to have created and like I say and are now in a position to give these to the children that's awesome uh, and what do you what do you hope to do you know is um, I mean it's twofold I mean children are always learning um, they're always sure there's always an opportunity to educate children. I mean, my big thing is, you know, the Bahamas is a shark sanctuary right now. You know, what does it hold for the future? We don't know. Um, I fear that in my lifetime, you know, we will see that be opened up to fisheries. I pray I'm wrong, but I always have that worry in the back of my mind. So the more people, more children I can get in front of with our teams, talk about sharks, to show them this book, to inspire them, um, you know, they are going to be the next leaders. Um, so I really hope that you can make a difference. And, you know, even when we do a, a class of 12 children or we do a, a 120 children, there's usually a few kids that stand out that are asking more questions, that are more excited. And, you know, it excites me to think you could be the one child that we need in the future. So, yeah, it's super exciting. Well, it certainly sounds like you're taking a, an appropriate approach by, you know, talking to the next generation who will be preserving their waters. So, uh, let's talk about your work on Shark Week because uh, you guys starred in a show together this year, Rise of the Monster Hammerheads. Um, it, it's obviously an animal that you have a great passion for. Tristan, tell us about the show. Well, um, I mean, the show, I've been working with great hammerheads now, I mean, I guess over 10 years. Um, and we've been tracking individuals in the Keys, in Carolina, in the Bahamas, from Bimini to Andros. And, you know, we're seeing quite a lot of individual variation um, with how they move and how they use these habitats. Um, and at the same time, you get these crazy stories from local fishers, both in Andros, in the Bahamas and in the Keys and in other areas where they see these what they call monster hammerheads. And it's not because they're a terrifying monster. It's just the size of them being gigantic animals that makes them a monster. Um, and so it's just the show is really kind of trying to figure out whether the the animal, you know, what's going on? What's the connection between these these two locations? Is there a connection? You know, are hammerheads from the Bahamas going to the US and vice versa? You know, could they be the same individual? And we're then using different research tools to try and understand more about this exciting, um, these these sightings. And obviously in Andros, uh, one of the, the great hammerheads here is called Sunken because there's a story about it sinking a boat. And then in the Keys, you've got an animal called Big Mo, uh, which is this massive, massive male that stalks the bridge there. So you've also got names attached to these animals too. And there's something special about a giant hammerhead. There really is. And, and when you see a motivated hammerhead too, like really coming in and excited and, and on something, it, it just is breathtaking and inspirational. Now, uh, for people who don't know, you know, the range of hammerheads that much, uh, could you tell us, uh, you're talking about great hammerheads, but what's the difference between a great hammerhead and the mm -hmm. other species of hammerheads that are out there? 
Right. So there are, the great hammerhead is the biggest of all the hammerheads. There are 10 species. The great hammerhead can get almost up to 20 feet. Um, and then you have your more intermediate sized hammerheads like a scalloped hammerhead. They're a very social species. They actually like to school together and they spend a lot of time at sea mounts. And then you have much smaller bodied species like a bonnet head that has a, a slightly smaller shaped head. You know, the great hammerhead's head is about maybe 20% the length of its body. Um, a bonnet head is probably around 10%. But then you have a really weird uh, hammerhead called the wing head that actually has almost like an aeroplane wing on the front of its head. And it's the length of its wing or hammer is 50% the length of its body. The great hammerhead is the, when it reaches adult size is basically a shark that eats other sharks. Whereas your bonnet heads love to chow on crabs, which Annie is particularly pleased about because she doesn't like crabs. <laughs> so you relish the the hammers going after crabs? I'm a big fan of bonnet heads because they take out the animals I don't like. <laughs> Why the disparagement towards crabs? Oh, it's, you know, everyone teases me about it. Anyone that's shared space with me on a boat finds it the funniest thing that I'll get in with almost, well, I will get in with any animal. But if there is a blue crab in the water, you've got zero to no chance like i'm just i'm not getting in i just i hate them i absolutely hate but them. but what is it is it a hatred or a fear or no, no it's definitely a fear like <laughs> it's definitely a fear i mean i was in with a sawfish on the west side of andros with tristan a few years ago where you know the visibility is three foot of water i've got a massive sawfish in front of me you know murky as all hell super sketchy do not recommend it to anyone and I was so caught in the moment of the sawfish. It was great. And then the moment the sawfish left, my mind went to how many blue crabs are under me right now? And it just <laughs> totally freaks me out. So, yeah, definite fear. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. My version of crabs is snakes. <laughs> I've never been a huge s snake man and moray eels as well. Not a fan. Just untrustworthy animals. <laughs> totally untrustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah i mean back to annie and crabs i mean you, can, you can, i can't even go on a romantic walk on the beach without wearing a pair of booties i mean it's ridiculous <laughs> i was gonna say i can't walk for a jungle without you being worried about snakes so you know just some roundabouts that's true yeah <laughs> well i mean if that's all you guys have to argue about crabs that and snakes exactly. you know that, that seems okay really yeah So let's jump back to hammerheads. Uh, how many species of hammerheads are you working with in Bahamas? Oh, well, in, in the Bahamas, in Andros, we focus mainly on the great hammerhead. And we've placed uh, four satellite tags on, on great hammerheads in Andros. We've put some in, in Bimini as well and others in the U.S., and what's interesting with the ones in Andros is that of three of four have actually stayed in Andros throughout the whole summer, which is completely the opposite of what the hammers were doing when I was working in Bimini. Yeah. So there seems to be something different with the hammerheads in Andros. You know, most of the hammerheads or all of the hammerheads would, would go to the, the east coast of the US or, or even into the Gulf of Mexico. With sharks, you always get one that throws the whole thing off. And we had one female that went all the way around to um, Tampa. 
So, you know, <laughs> uh, we need to get more tags out to try and figure out how they're, how they're moving. And, and obviously, we need that information to figure out if the animals in the Bahamas are connected to those in the US and if they're part of the same stock in order to then manage them. Well, it kind of makes sense that they'd have some type of interaction at some point, right? I mean, they're a highly migratory species. Yeah, it's definitely. not a long distance. If they're going around to Tampa, they can certainly cruise out to Andros, right? Yeah, you would you would expect so, but you have the Gulf Stream, which is a you know a very powerful warm current. Um, you know they'd need to cross that. You know we know of other species that do it. You know, I, I, and clearly with uh, with the work from Bimini, they were regularly moving across. But the ones from from Andros do seem to stick around. So it's yeah, it's all very exciting and and you know fascinating for us to try and try and tag these animals um you know and annie obviously tagged uh, one of the biggest ones we've tagged for a while down in the keys during the the rise of the monster yeah show. so for people who don't know the the technique and practice annie how do you catch these massive hammerheads and tag them and release them safely because they they are known to be fairly fragile and you know not do well after being caught for that animal obviously we had the the big male hammerhead so we bring it to the side of the boat. We'll secure it as fast as possible. Um, we obviously have a very experienced team. We all know what we're doing. We've all had uh, many workups before with hammerheads. We will have very specific um, roles. And then we have a stopwatch looking at the time as well. So we have certain cutoffs. The animal isn't in this position by this time. We will release it. So we have a very strict policy in place um, of how we do it and why we do it and when we do it. Um, but yeah, and then of course we take measurements, we take samples to look at DNA, um, put the tag on and then release it as fast as possible. You know, working with the team that we have, everyone really does love sharks. Our main focus is always the animal. I often joke that, you know, the animal is more important than anyone on the boat, you know. So I'm always like, this is the most important thing. So we will always choose to let it go. Um, and lose the data and then put a tag on it and risk anything happening to it. That's just not something we do. And what is the biggest one you've managed to tag so far? I think that was it, Tristan, wasn't it? Just under 330, 350? What's that? It's like 12 feet, is that about right? Yeah, 11, yeah. 12 feet. And big hammerhead. Yeah. But we've seen in Andros, I mean, during the Shark Week show the year before, I mean, that was the biggest hammerhead I've ever seen. Um, yeah. It came in and the reef sharks just... It reminded me of someone with a bowling ball throwing it down and the, and the pins all pinging around. This hammerhead rolled in and these reef sharks just, they scattered. And that shark had presence. Like it was absolutely massive. It was really exciting to be in the water with. Yeah, they uh, they get pretty imposing when they're massive like that. Uh, I just saw this story where um, up in uh, Portland, Maine, they were uh, actually selling hammerheads so that looked like a, as a bycatch of um, of a, a trawler, which isn't supposed to happen. The trawlers are not supposed to be able to get them. They're supposed to be able to be released, but you know they apparently caught them, and these animals are, are now being sold in a in a fish market, which is no good. But could they possibly connected to um, populations down here, down south? The best example is the animal that Annie tagged. You know uh, that animal's migratory route over the last four months has been unbelievable. I mean, it's almost traveled four and a half thousand miles. It's It's gone from the Keys over to Louisiana, back to Tampa, down back to the Keys, then all the way up to Carolina and Georgia. And now it's uh, currently um, just off, uh, what is it, Cape Hatteras, I think. Um, so, you know, that's just in the span of four months or five months, how far this animal has traveled. 
what we find during the summer months is that they are able to go further north um, because obviously that warmer water allows them to travel travel further up. They also have quite a narrow thermal range. So they generally spend a lot of time between 25 and 27 degrees. And obviously when they're traveling up to some of these areas, they're, they're picking out these... Um, these kind of warmer waters and then targeting prey there. I mean, that, um, that range is pretty incredible. Like just over a f- four months to travel 4,000 yeah. miles is, is nuts. And you, you describe a behavior that's kind of going back and forth between a, a really long range that to me doesn't sound like it would have any really apparent motivation between, you know, temperature or, you know, prey or migratory routes or whatever. It, it, it just seems like it's kind of patrolling. Can you theorize, you know, with your data, why it's moving that far? Um, well, they, they, a lot of these hammerheads seem to have these kind of stop-off areas where they spend, you know, a month or so, and that's probably linked to to foraging. Um, but obviously, you know, there's reproduction as well. During the summer months, uh, these hammers are probably trying to, the males are obviously seeking out mates. The females are either seeking out mates or they're finding a good place to pup, or they're trying to you know, build up their energy stores to obviously uh, nourish their young that they've got in them. So, um, you know, there's a lot of strategies going on. You know, we know from other shark species that the females, when they are pregnant, um, will will search for warmer waters to um, enhance that gestation and uh, metabolism, etc. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. It's linked to reproduction um, and feeding. You know, a great hammerhead reaches twenty feet in size. Anything that's that big has got to eat a lot of a lot of a lot of prey. Um, you know, so that it's it's throughout the food chain. The biggest animals are, are usually less abundant. Do they have more or less fecundity? Um, the great hammerheads they pup around. We believe around forty to fifty pups every couple of years. Uh, scalloped hammerheads, I think, is a bit lower than that. It's every couple of years as well. Um, so, yeah, you know, this is one of the biggest challenges is there's so much variation across the reproductive modes and output of these animals. And, you know, for fisheries, trying to manage all these different species, you know, sandbar sharks, um, you know, have even less pups. You know, I think it's four or five pups every couple of years. They reach maturity at 16. Blue sharks, for example, they grow quite quickly. I think within six or seven years, they're reaching maturity. They have almost 100 pups. You know, so this ties into that, you know, you can have a sustainable um, uh, fishery for some of these animals, some of these species. But the biggest problem is that they overlap mm. in their ranges and habitat use and, it, it, you know, trying to manage all of these animals at the same time. But, you know, we're lucky in the waters that we're in in, in the US, there's there's pretty good management and, and uh, quite a few species have been on recovery. You know, great hammerheads and scalloped hammerheads. One of the biggest issues with them is that um, they suffer from post-release mortality you know when they get caught uh, by a fisher even if they're supposed to release them a lot of them are dead on arrival at the boat or when they're released they die as well they just don't seem to have the capacity to recover unlike you know your hardcore nurse shark that you could basically take out the water put it on a table for an hour and Mm. then it would swim off straight afterwards um you know and that's just the different (laughs) adaptations of i wouldn't recommend to do that but it's the different adaptations of these animals the uh, the physiological restrictions of the of the hammerhead versus the the nurse shark so yeah is that something you're being a little facetious about or is that an actual survival statistic that nurse shark could be kept out of the water for now i know of one a long time ago um someone i was with got bit by one when working with them on the side of a boat and we couldn't get 
their hand out. So we took the shark out of the water and after 40 minutes, it let go. And then we put it back in and it swam off. <laughs> so really, and but some of those benthic species, you know, like the walking sharks, they're able to survive in extremely low oxygen sure. conditions. So I, I think, you know, the nurse sharks probably similar and are able to, um, you know, they don't stress out as much. And we know that from loads of studies on physiology as well. And Yeah, those those sharks are at least colloquially known to, you know, have that sort of, they call it pit bull bite, you know, uh, something that just won't let go. I often say to people, if you get bitten by most sharks, they let go. They take one bite and they're like, I'm out of here. But a nurse shark will not let go. So yeah. all those people that are out there, you know, diving in with nurse sharks, whether it be down in the Keys and it's on the reef or somewhere in the Bahamas where, you know, they're petting them and doing all these kind of crazy things is that is more dangerous. So I do not recommend going to nurse sharks because you will drown before that thing lets go. And they are going to be around for forever. There's nothing's going to take out a nurse shark. So um, Tristan touched on something that we've <laughs> we've spoken uh, a bit on this show about before. And uh, Annie, I know you've done some work in this field, but um, talking about, you know, fishing tournaments and sustainable fisheries and, you know, how we should be approaching the resource of sharks, whether it be seen as a tourism thing or a, or a sustenance food commercial sales thing. And we talk about some species which seem to have a sustainable fishery, um, but they're also sharing the waters with others who are extremely fragile and would be targeted should that fishery be open. What are your thoughts on that, Annie? Like, should we have better management, a moratorium? Like, are things well managed? Yeah, I mean, it's split, right? Because from my point of view, I love sharks. I don't want to see anyone ever eat a shark. I don't want to see anyone hurt a shark. I certainly don't want to see anyone kill a shark. So half of my brain is, let's not touch them, let's not kill them, let's not do anything. The other part of my brain is, well, it's always going to be a thing, but the other argument is if you're catching it as bycatch, you know, do you throw it back in and waste it? And do you use it? You know, it's it's such a complicated matter. Um, yeah, that, that bycatch me, one's interesting because I, I look at that and like, okay, there might be a provision for somebody to catch something as bycatch, and then the argument goes, let's not waste it. Let's allow them to to sell that because that might stop them from going and targeting other ones, or it's just a waste of food. But in reality, if they toss it back. It's not a waste. It goes back into the food chain. It goes back into you know some uh, you know a cycle where, wherever that happens, whether it's immediately at the surface because there's other sharks around, or it sinks down and sustains a bunch of worms on the bottom of the ocean. Like one way or another, it goes back into the system. Uh, I just I think that the system of you know keep it anyway since it's already dead is just prone to you know violations and abuse. It, it seems that people be like, oh well, it's kind of dead. Let's keep it. I, yeah, and I think the other point, just to you know, agree with you on that, is you know, Tristan and I spoke about this recently, with regards to comparing it to the ivory trade. You know, mm. is it even ethically okay? You know, should we be even eating these animals, even if it is going to be thrown back in dead? We'll keep it and use it anyway. Like, should we be selling certain shark meats that are toxic? Like, is this not a just a more simple question of ethics? You know, not just about sustainability. Um, it just simply being, should we be selling meat that is toxic yeah. in some situations? Well, let's let's talk about that briefly because 
that is a a prevalent argument for why people shouldn't eat shark meat because it's toxic. Let's speak to it from a, a, a scientific level and, you know, take the emotions out of it. Like uh, we see people eating black tips a lot and I know that they have slightly less bioaccumulation of that bad stuff in their meat. Should we consider that a non-health risk and just approach it from an ethical standpoint? I mean, sure, you definitely can. Um, I mean, it's the same with swordfish, all these other top predators that have the same problem that sharks do. Is yeah. You could you could market it and manage it in a way that people are not eating it regularly, which is where the problem is. But as a conservationist, I would prefer to hide behind the toxic meat. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Tristan, what do you reckon in terms of like species management? Like... Um, Sometimes we'll get like the US fisheries who are saying, hey, this is okay to take this certain number of animals in this one particular area. But then we look at like the CITES database and that says, hey, unilaterally, or at least in this very, very broad region, this is a potentially critically endangered animal and shouldn't be taken at all. How do we pass that as scientists and people trying to explain, communicate conservation to people? Well, I think that's where, you know, you need to make sure that you've got you know, studies that are trying to figure out the ranges of these animals because, you know, a lot of the smaller bodied species have very small ranges and you manage them regionally, you know, and that's part of the project that we're doing with these hammerheads is trying to figure out, and with silky sharks as well, is, you know, do you manage them as one complete stock or do we manage them separately? You know, the, the regional management is really yeah. important. Should we be communicating to people, hey, you know, regionally this species is x status yeah. uh, but globally it's important to be looking at it because it could be contributing to other other ranges that are much more endangered and therefore you know the the global status of endangered should stand with great hammerheads globally they're critically endangered when mm. you combine the information from assessments in different waters whereas regionally you know in the u.s and in the bahamas that they're, they're actually doing pretty well you know it makes it really confusing um, to, to Joe blog, you know, yeah. what do I do then if locally they're okay, but globally they're not? Um... So I was going to say one thing I think that conservationists as a whole kind of get caught up on is this eating shark talk. Um, and I think it's something where there's just a massive missed opportunity. You know, I don't eat shark. You guys don't eat shark. People listening to us don't eat shark, probably. Um, the, when we're sharing posts on social media saying don't eat shark, don't eat from restaurants that you know sell shark, and and I'm all for that, but I wonder the impact that that's actually having. You're almost you know preaching to the choir mm. about not doing something they're already not doing. And I think for me personally, this whole conversation on management and fisheries is almost better directed at bycatch because I don't eat tuna. But probably the people that are listening on, maybe they do eat tuna, maybe their friends and family eat tuna, and that is a whole different beast. So I feel like if we could shift our focus to not just eating sharks, looking at the bycatch, again, tuna is a prime example, kills mm. millions and millions of silky sharks every year. That's something people, in my opinion, should be focusing more on than just the killing. So in uh, if we were to take that sort of more hardline approach, which I think is a good one to take, especially when we're educating people about the ramifications of their choices on the, the global ecosystem, not just looking at one particular species, but saying, hey, your behavior, your activity trickles down and has this massive effect on everything else. What would be the, you know, the best case scenario for someone looking to, you know, 
exercise their belief in protecting sharks in their daily shopping habits? I mean, to me, that would be it. I mean, we can, again, we can talk about not consuming shark. We can talk about mislabeling um, of fish and that goes way beyond sharks. That's you know, all fish is mislabeled. There's a huge market for it. But for me personally, my number one advice is always and has always been remove tuna from your diet and educate people on per se netting because it is a disgusting fishery for the best part. What about uh, line caught tuna? Yes, there is obviously line line caught tuna. Um, It is a minority. I don't know how much that's managed. I don't know how is there somebody on every boat observing it. I don't know. So if you want peace of mind, for me personally, just remove it, eliminate it. It's one fish, one fish you could remove that would really and honestly help sharks. So, Now, before we wrap up today, I wanted to ask you guys, because you, you're in a fairly unique situation. You know, you're married, you're both working on the water, you're kind of living the dream in terms of, you know, your shark experiences and animal experiences. How are you managing that? How are you imparting that onto your kids? And do they also enjoy it? Yeah, they don't. They don't have a choice. They sit down every night. They have shark lessons and classes every <laughs> evening for two hours. Of course, they can't get away from Shark Week. They can't really get away from <clears throat> all the shark T-shirts and toys and all those different things. Um, they can make their own decisions. Obviously, we want them to have experiences in the world, and hopefully, that will be with with some of these animals. How how are they in the water? Are you obviously you guys are both great in the water. Annie, you're a fantastic freediver. Yeah, they're both good swimmers. Leo Leo our son's kind of like a little tadpole. He loves he, he can't really swim on the surface. He's more of an underwater <laughs> swimmer. So um you know, he can do a length underwater, but he can't do a length on the top. Like it's bizarre. Um so, you know, maybe he's got that from seeing us doing it. <laughs> kind of what my daughter does as well. Yeah, yeah she's. Uh, it's actually kind of worrying because you know she's perfectly fine, but she'll come up, gasp for a breath, and then go back down, and she'll be down there for a minute, just swimming around quite happily. And then you're like, "Yeah, is she okay? Yeah, she's totally fine. She just likes being underwater." It's, That's it's cool. also just leading by example, though. You know, just just gone World Oceans Day, we took the kids to the beach. We did a trash clean up. You know, we hauled a ghost fad out of the water. They saw us do it. So I think it's just them seeing us do things like that. You know, in restaurants, turning down straws, all those little things that do eventually add up. Um, and yeah. having people coming in and out of our house, you know, they see scientists, they're listening to our conversations. So I think there's a huge part of them just being kids and observing what's going on around them um, and seeing what we're doing. How can people help you? Savingtheblue.org? Is that, uh, that's your nonprofit, right? Savingtheblue.org. But for the best part, it's really about funding the opportunity. So I would say if people can spare $5 or $10 to donate to Saving the Blue, it will re-inject money into printing more books. I would say that would be the best thing to do. You can go onto Facebook and donate. You can go on Instagram and donate. You know, there's endless ways that people can um, donate and support us now. That's awesome. And Tristan, what's next up for you, mate? Do you guys have another Shark Week show in the, in the books or is it studying or what are you doing? I'm going on a trip to Andros in November uh, on a research trip there with a focus on trying to tag great hammerheads and silky sharks. Uh, and obviously at the same time, yeah, trying to pitch the next fun, exciting adventure with with great hammerheads as well. So, you know, I'm kind of fond of that species. So hopefully there'll be another show next year for people to to enjoy. Saying it's not all just hanging out on boats with cameras and sharks and your wife and going and having great adventures. <laughs> you got to do the grind work too, huh? 
Yeah, I wish it was, <laughs> but you know, a lot of the year is spent in front of the the laptop, writing and reading, and um, yeah, trying to come up with new ideas and, and ways to fund some of these projects. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Tristan. Thank you, Annie. I really appreciate you guys spending time with us here on Shark Week, the podcast. Uh, we we'll hope to have you back soon. Yeah, thanks, Luke. Thank you. It's been great fun. You know, if you're a Shark Week watcher, you'll know Tristan and Annie Gartridge because we've seen them on TV and they're an inspiring couple. I mean, they're doing it. They're out there together. They're working together. They have a shared passion for these animals and they're doing really good work while also maintaining a nonprofit and a family and having a good time at the same time. I mean, it doesn't come easily. I, I know that personally they, uh, they have to work extremely hard to make it all work, but they do. And that's something that I find incredibly inspiring about people who have these shared passions for sharks. And it's something that we can all take note on. You know, if you're really passionate about sharks and you want to, to live it, I mean, Annie's a perfect example of someone who did exactly that. She doesn't have formal training, but she loves sharks. She pursued it, and now it's her life. You know, um, we've run into several of these people in Shark Week and on these podcasts who just follow this passion. And if it's not something you want to make a career out of, if you're just an avid listener and love Shark Week and everything else, then you have the opportunity to take some advice from some of these experts who are coming on to further your love and protection of these animals, whether it's, you know, listening to Annie's advice and saying, hey, I am not going to eat any shark and perhaps even I'm going to give up tuna because tuna contributes greatly to the culling of certain species of sharks. Maybe you're not that hardcore. Maybe you want to educate kids who are growing up and, and learning about the ocean and about their environment. But one way or another, I think everybody has their place in protecting sharks and preserving the ocean and educating people about the opportunities that we have to save this species. And that's a perfect example of a couple doing just that. Okay, that's it for today's episode. I want you to stay tuned to this feed as we continue to cover the sharkiest current topics. We'll talk to top scientists and experts and learn about the latest conservation efforts to keep this amazing animal from extinction. I want to thank you for listening to Shark Week, the podcast. Be sure to rate us five stars. It really does help. And subscribe us for more shark fun facts. I'm Luke Tipple. I'll chat to you next time.